Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Journalist Judy Muller says that at a time when mainstream news media are hemorrhaging and doomsayers are predicting the death of journalism, we can take heart. The First Amendment is alive and well, she says, in small towns across America. In her book from 2011, Emus Loose in Agnar, Big Stories from Small Towns, Muller takes us on a grassroots tour of rural American newspapers from an Indian reservation in Montana to the Alaskan tundra to Martha's Vineyard and to Moab and Monticello in Utah. Discovers that many weeklies are not just surviving, but thriving. She says that in these small towns, stories can range from club news to clan news, from broken treaties to broken hearts, from banned books to escaped emus. They document the births, deaths, crimes, sports, and local shenanigans that might seem to matter only to those who live there. And yet, she says, these so-called little stories create a mosaic of American life. Judy Muller has won an Emmy, a DuPont Columbia, and Peabody Award. Uh, as a television correspondent, she's uh, an NPR commentator and is professor of journalism in the USC Annenberg School for Journalism and Communication. Judy Muller, welcome to the program. It's I'm delighted to be here. We discovered, at least I discovered your book through a uh, collection on uh, common issues of the rural West, Bridging the Distance, edited by David Danbaum. We had him on the program and found oh. your, your chapter on, on Norwood, Colorado. Uh, very interesting. Oh. and discovered your that. I wish I'd known that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> discovered uh, your book and, and uh, I, I love rural issues. I, I come from, you know, rural uh, town, several thousand, so so not as rural as yeah. some of the places you write about. My mother comes from the town of Hinckley in western Utah, so it's very rural. Um, oh, yeah. So you've, you, you uh, I guess, cut your chops with, uh, you know, big town journalism. Uh, so they covered the Rodney King trial and the suing riots, the North Ridge earthquake, O.J. Simpson criminal civil trial. So how did you go from that to an interest in small town newspapers? Well, like you... Uh, my roots are in a small town. Uh, my parents both grew up in a little town in eastern Oregon called Milton Freewater. It's hyphenated because neither of the little towns that merged wanted to give up their identity, which is hilarious anyway. Um, but I, I loved that town. I loved being at the foot of the Blue Mountains and near the wheat fields. And it was a magical place to me growing up when we'd go back for visits. And uh, so I think to, to really appreciate small-town journalism, you really have to appreciate small towns. And, and that means you don't come from a place of snobism. It means you, you come from a place of, um, of curiosity and interest and, and what can happen in that small microcosm that really mirrors our country as a whole, which I find fascinating. So you spent a, you spent a year going around, I guess, visiting small-town newspapers? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I had I had to figure out which ones to go to because there are like ten thousand weeklies in this country. So, and I had everybody saying, "Oh, you got to go to my town." You know that was, but I I started out by uh, talking to people who really knew uh, weekly journalism, and I went to the award winners first. And so I went to the Texas Panhandle to visit Lori Ezell Brown, who has won a Courage in Journalism Award. Um, I went throughout the West. Utah uh, has quite a few papers in my book. And partly that's because I have a small, I have a home in Norwood, Colorado, um, which is near the Four Corners area. And uh, so I sort of spread out from there. So Colorado and Utah, New Mexico, uh, Montana, these are all well represented because my expense budget was limited. Yeah. Uh, You know, I think there's a stereotype about small town newspapers. I, I, when I, immediately when I think of small town newspapers, I think of 
the charming articles, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so visited their grandchildren. Yeah, <laughs> the club news. The, yeah, the, yeah <laughs> which is which is wonderful and charming, and you get a real sense of the community. Um, and I also, I guess, think of, you know, the typos and some, some yeah. of those things which aren't the caught club. as much with a small yeah. newspaper. Uh, by the way, I'll, I'll just uh, tell this story quickly. Um, yeah. This is the Vernal Express, and I believe that this happened long enough ago that no one associated with this uh, typo would be there now. But anyway, um, it became part of our family lore for years on end. Um, there was a semi-truck who was descending the switchbacks from uh, Flaming Gorge down to Vernal and oh, had gone off, oh, the, well, yep. gone off yep. the road. And uh, I think luckily driver survived... And the authorities used a big wench, they said, to, to extricate that, that truck instead of a winch. And uh, so we pictured this big wench as maybe German and, you know, very muscular. And, and, and for years on end, we'd laugh about that. Uh, just a simple, simple little, you know, uh, typo. That I associate with small town newspapers as well. I don't know if that's kind of a mistaken impression or not. Well, I think it's, there's such a wide range. You have some very professional weekly newspapers, and by professional, I mean editors with good standards uh, and um, careful writers, good writers, uh, and you have little weeklies that are run by, I think, of the Dove Creek Press in Utah uh, near my home, which is run by a married couple. They admit they've never had any training in journalism. They've had little training in English, actually, <laughs> in terms of oh. writing, mm-hmm. and they're full of typos, and that's part of the charm. And the, but what comes through is their passion for their town. And they're not afraid to call it like it is, which is tough in a little town. I mean, the whole idea of being too close for comfort really comes home when you're talking about small-town journalism. Uh, there are some real heroes out there. It ranges, though, to people who back away from controversy because they don't want to lose that one big advertiser like the bank. Uh, don't want to offend. That's the low bottom of, of the scale. I think of uh, Garrison Keillor's uh, Lake Wobegone fictional editor, Harold Starr, who is the editor of the Harold Starr. That's <laughs> right, yeah. His, yeah. On his masthead, it, sa- it says, hey, I have to live here, too. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> so right. That would be the cowardly version. Um, but then there are very, very brave people who stand up to strong, powerful interests that are corrupt and hurting people. And uh, those people are amazing to me. Um, and they take few vacations, maybe one week a year, if that. Uh, they just believe in what they're doing. They don't make a lot of money. They just make enough to stay where they want to be. I want to loop back to that too close for comfort. Uh, and, and you cite uh, a couple of newspapers in um, in Utah uh, in in that chapter. Uh, maybe we could uh, <laughs> maybe we jump in now with with an illustration. This is a, a very powerful illustration of the value a newspaper can have to a, to a small town. Right. And you tell the story of a young man who uh, who selected a place to live, Concrete, Washington. <laughs> yes. I'm not sure what the population yes. is, and he decided to, to start up a newspaper there. Yes, he did. And I found out about him uh, through a friend of mine who is a producer for Sunday Morning, CBS Sunday Morning. She says, I wanted to do a story about this guy, but I couldn't sell it, so I'm going to give it to you. And, and she found out about it from the Seattle papers, one of the Seattle papers that had a headline saying, this just in, man wants to start newspaper, <laughs> believes that print is not dead. It was this kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, whoa, who starts a newspaper in the digital age? And um, I called him up, 
and he was in concrete, which the motto is, you know, um, cementing the future for a hundred years. I mean, it just, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. Anyway, I called him up and I said, I'd like to talk to him about why he's doing it. And he wanted to revive a paper that had gone out of business 20 years before because he felt that the community really needed it. He'd been in advertising at PR and he's not fulfilled. So he said, that's great. Can you come for uh, concrete, the, the, the centennial so that we can put you in the parade, you can be on my float. And you know, and right there, I lost all objectivity. I was riding on this guy's float, throwing out the paper to, you know, dressed as a newsboy, with, you know, throwing out the paper to the crowd. And they were coming up and hugging and kissing this guy and, and thanking him for bringing this paper back to an area that's really kind of isolated. And they had really missed knowing uh, what was happening in their community. Now, Facebook, you might think, would have taken care of that, but it really doesn't because they wanted one editor, one person to look at all the news and get it piecemeal. So but, anyway, he was, he's amazing. Uh, we didn't win the best float. I was really upset. But which one uh, the did? Redne- the redneck laundromat won <laughs> the best float. I said, well, that's an outrage. Anyway, I got very involved there. Um, but he really did make a difference in that little town. And, um, I, I, I was inspired by it. Um, I kind of lost my objectivity there and throughout this thing because it's hard not to, as a journalist who's been at the network level covering major stories and really airdropping into to disasters, you know, and then leaving. And it's hard when you wake up the next morning and you're living next door to the person you've written about. And you have to, to face them in the... Sometimes these these editors and reporters would get the cold shoulder at the one market in town from people in line with them because they were mad about an article that had been written. So you have to really, the most successful editors I found were, were married or living with somebody because they needed a friend when they went home at night, somebody they could count on because it was tough. Yeah, that that is tough. Um, maybe we could uh, jump to that. Uh, you have, a, in fact, you have a chapter called uh, "Too Close for Comfort," um, yep. where where you talk about um, kind of that tension. You remember the community um, in Utah? But, but, are you talking about? Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe we could talk about um, some yep. of those papers Monticello. in newspaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yes, that fellow uh, in Monticello, Utah, um, and he'd grown up there, the area of Blanding and Monticello which is um, predominantly Mormon country, and he's Mormon. And he went away to business school, uh, got an MBA in business, and was up in Seattle and doing the business thing, and a banker, I think. And he just said, you know, I'm, I'm losing my humanity up here. I'm not, I'm not close to people. So he moved back and bought the, uh, the paper, and um, immediately, Billy Boyle is his name, he's a great guy, um, and discovered how hard it is, you know, because I think the first year after I had interviewed him, I had to go back to re-interview him because a major story happened there. It made national news. Um, Dr. Red, a uh, big name there, um, who had given birth to half the people in this town, ha- had been arrested along with his wife uh, by federal agents who stormed in and arrested and put him in shackles and took him away for um, for dealing in Native American artifacts, which they 
been digging up from Native American lands, which is against the laws, you know. Um, and this really split the town. I mean, people were so angry uh, against the federal government, which is already in the in the fabric of this community, and um, the way it was done. And people who were angry at the Reds for, you know, violating this um, and bringing this down upon the town. Dr. Red committed suicide, um, and this then became a huge story. And 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 Billy Boyle, Bill Boyle, had to cover this, um, and he had to cover it in one weekend, the funeral, the suicide. Um, so he handled it by doing the front page story straight on. And... Uh, as a regular news item about what had happened. And he let the family write the obituary on the back page. So to get the whole story, you really sort of had to read it like a quilt. Um, if you wanted to know the good side of Dr. Red, you read the obituary, which was, I mean, to read this, you would think he was ready for sainthood. The front page was, you know, about all the things he'd been accused of. And uh, so it was really, and I, I asked him, why didn't you get some of your stringers to come in and help you with this edition. And he said, because I couldn't trust it to anybody else. I had to be the one responsible and accountable. I had to be able to look at people and say, I did this. So I, I really was amazed at what he pulled off in three days' time. And I imagine, and you recount another instant for which he's been shunned by this former friend. Uh, this is a separate story. I don't know whether he, what, what fallout he got from the, from the Dr. Red story. You know, going uh, forward. Well, he, he, he really didn't get too much backlash because I think he handled it well. And I think handing the reins over to the family um, for the obituary helped ameliorate that, that backlash. The other time I think you're talking about was um, he had quoted a friend um, who, and, and even tried to disguise the identity because it was a controversial quote. And I believe the friend stopped going on skiing vacations with them. I mean, this is how, you know, right down to the nitty-gritty of friendship it comes. Mm -hmm. And you have to decide, are you going to be loyal to the truth and your readers? Or are you going to be loyal to friendship? You know, or not friendship, but getting along or standing up. That's really how I'd put it. And that's uh, the rubber really meets the road when you're in a small town like that, right? You, you, you're much more removed if you're working for a big town paper, because you can... Oh, you, oh, you can my go God. home. It's ridiculous. It's so different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's another instant. In, um, it, this is in that uh, book, Bridging the Distance. Uh, it's, it's, right. In fact, it's titled Too Close for Comfort. This is an incident that happened in in uh, town you lived in, Nor Norwood, uh, Colorado. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if you could uh, uh, treat that in, in brief. This is a high school hazing yeah. incident, and uh, it got well, the this, community this, riled yeah. up. <laughs> This happened uh, after the book had come out. I would have included it in the book. Uh, but this is a real classic example of how uh, important it is to have good small-town journalism covering a story that is so volatile. And in this case, um, this happened when this high school, Norwood High School wrestling team, went down to the state championship in Denver on a bus. And... Norwood High School is very small. I think the graduating class of seniors that year was like 12 people. So you were talking very rural. And everybody knows everybody. And when the coach took the team in to be officially weighed in, he left four boys on the bus who were not on the team but were younger. 
I think they were eighth graders and a couple of freshmen. And one boy was sitting up front, and the other three boys, uh, depending on who you talk to, I mean, nobody knows really what happened on that bus except them, um, and, and the testimony that came out later, but the three boys in the back of the bus decided they would you know, haze him, basically, is how they looked at it. And they carried him to the back of the bus, um, and they pulled his sweatshirt hood over his face. They masking taped it around his neck so he could breathe, but he couldn't see. They uh, pulled his trousers down, and they inserted quarters into his buttocks as though he were a piggy bank. Um, And by anybody's standard that I know of, this is assault. And that's, you know... It, it, pretty pretty terrible. Um, this kind of thing, as I investigated it, had been going on at the Norwood High School, at least in athletics, for years. And I've talked to some of my, my college students from, you know, rural areas, and even in city schools, and they say, oh, yeah, this happens. It's athletics. And there's a hazing thing that goes on. Well, the, the, what really made this incredibly interesting was that the father of the boy who was the victim in this case, was the high school principal. And he was on that trip. He wasn't on the bus, obviously, but he was on that trip, he and his wife. And the father of two of those other three boys was the wrestling coach and a, the school board president. Okay, this is When you live in a small town, you do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what really got it interesting was that those two families had been best friends and gone on vacations together and this not only split those families in two, it split the town in two. And you, you might be wondering, well, who could defend this? You'd be amazed. It just, uh, what really got people mad was that the father, after not getting any satisfaction from the school, uh, the school principal or the school, um, um, whatever, the, the, the authorities at the school, um, he reported it to the Denver police because it was in that jurisdiction. And they came up interviewed the boys, took them away for an overnight in Denver jail, um, charged them with what would be felonies in a in a, an adult court. Um, and from there, how it played out in the press was my, uh, my mission. I wanted to see how opinions were changed, how things were directed, based on how the local press ca- covered it. Um, and that really cried out to me a need for a strong local paper. And the Norwood Post, over the years, had lost a lot of its... um, The editor was a part-timer who wasn't paid very much. She's a wonderful person, but she wasn't a journalist. And this this story, she found distasteful. She wanted to push it away. Um, And she came into it late and then only reported what happened in court. Meanwhile, the Telluride paper, which is just up the river from Norwood, uh, was run by two experienced journalists out of New York. And when they heard about this, they got right on it um, and covered it on their on their website, daily updates. Everybody was reading that. The problem with that is that Telluride is not trusted. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how to put this. It's a, it's a fancy resort of rich people, and Norwood is a ranching community. And so a lot of people, even though they were reading that, I think that what they needed was a local voice. They needed editorials. They needed people calling for calm. They needed a, an experienced voice saying, look, this was a terrible thing that happened. Let's, you know, whatever it was, 
and that didn't happen. So I think that uh, the story was hijacked by people who didn't understand the town, and that that's trouble. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Judy Muller, we're talking about her book, Emus Loose in Egnar, Big Stories from Small Towns. We're talking about small-town newspapers. Judy Muller uh, says that uh, First Amendment is alive and well, even when uh, national media is uh, facing uh, crunching financial pressure, um, hemorrhaging money and, uh, and news people. Uh, this is small towns where uh, a lot of the, the great reporting is happening. And uh, so we're talking about this on the program today. I'd love to hear about your hometown newspaper, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. When we come back, much more on this Too Close to Comfort idea. We'll uh, talk about what Judy Muller calls the holy trinity of uh, small-town newspapers, which are the police blotter, high school sports, and obituaries. Um, and uh, I want to read this paragraph. This will uh, whet your uh, appetite. This is from the chapter Crusaders. One night in 1961 in the small town of Canadian, Texas, nine-year-old Laurie Ezel, is it Ezel? Ezel? Uh, Ezel, woke, yeah. Ezel woke to the sound of a rock crashing through her bedroom window. It left a hole in the screen and shattered the glass. She was startled but not surprised. Dad's written another editorial, she thought. We'll talk about that paper and more following the break. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. What kind of leader is best is a national debate in a presidential election year. The media generally favors a brash, vocal, audacious person who claims to have the answers. But history favors humility. Most presidents, business leaders, and church and civic leaders face unique problems every day. They need to be humble enough to ask for experts, to seek advice, to clarify the best course of action. While we need leaders who see the big picture, we also need leaders who can ask the right questions and move us forward to the next set of problems. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Judy Muller says that at a time when mainstream news media are hemorrhaging and doomsayers are predicting the death of journalism, we can take heart. The First Amendment is alive and well in small towns across America. In her book from 2011, Emus Loose in Egnar, Big Stories from Small Towns, she takes us on a grassroots tour of rural American newspapers. That's what we're talking about in the program today. Love to hear about your hometown newspaper, 1-800-826-1495, toll free anywhere you're listening, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, the way to, to get to us. Um, I want to just read this, uh, just a, a couple sentences from uh, from your book, Judy Muller. Uh, we're talking about the Concrete Herald. And a young man, uh, uh, Jason Miller, uh, resurrected that paper after it had been out of print for a while. Uh, so you say, when it went out of print, said Miller, said Miller rather, the communities started to fragment between themselves and amongst it themselves. The area he could see needed some kind of connective tissue. A former publisher, Annie Brashears, told him something that he thought at first was hyperbole. Uh, she said, when the concrete hero folded, the community crumbled. He says, now he believes her. An illustration, and in fact, when you were in that parade, people were rushing up to him saying, thank you so much for, for bringing back yeah. the paper. 
yep, I'm not making that up. It was amazing. It is connective tissue. And I, I think that one of the fun things about local papers that is lost to big city journalism is are the little touches, and I call it the holy trinity of local news, which is obituaries, high school sports, which is huge, and um, the police blotter, which is, I consider, sort of the haiku of Main Street USA, because in just a few words, you can read into between the lines of what the sheriff's dispatcher gives to the reporter. The best ones, I think, are just are just flat out uh, printed as, as they came into the dispatcher uh, without any comment. And like, for instance, one, um, I think it was in, in uh, Chadron, Nebraska paper there, where somebody said, man calls to report wife went missing 15 months ago. <laughs> he, just, he took his time reporting that one. <laughs> there's a there's a story a there. Of, yeah. Yeah, and there are a lot of animals involved usually in the police blotters. It's a you know, man calls to ask for help getting overweight dog up basement stairs. <laughs> you would not see that in LA. No, and you the LA Times doesn't cover that. Yeah. By the way, is that where you got emus loose and eggnar? It is. I'm so glad you asked. Um it was a, a really cheap way to get a litter of uh, element into my title, but Emus, Loose, and Egnar. Egnar is a town in um, Colorado, or is it Utah? It's right on the border there. Um, and it's um, Range, spelled backwards. They wanted to call the town Range, but that was taken already, so they spelled it backwards. And um, the Dove Creek Press, which is nearby in Dove Creek, uh, had a police blotter, a sheriff's blotter, really. And uh, what happened was that the sheriff was getting these calls for several weeks uh, of sightings of a strange creature, strange creatures running through their pastures, uh, which prompted them to either call the police or, you know, stop drinking. One of the two, because, you know, if you've ever seen an emu, um, it, they look prehistoric. You know, they look a little dinosaur-like. You know, <laughs> they're like ostriches. And they didn't, people didn't know that one of the neighbors, one of the ranchers, was raising emus, which are good for oil and, and their meat. And, uh, and they didn't know. So when they saw these creatures running through their land, they got spooked and called the sheriff. So this was really emus, loose, and ignorant. It took a while to round them all up. They're very hard to catch. You can go on YouTube and see actual, there's a whole bunch of them, of, uh, of videos showing the capture of emus, usually with beaters. It's quite, yeah. I get I get more email now about emus. You would just to me before this it was a you know answer in a crossword you, puzzle, and yeah. now it's it's close to me. <laughs> now now you're the emu lady. You're you're an, you're an expert since that's in the in the yeah. title. Uh, so you you referenced this earlier, and I wanted to want to maybe expand on this. Um, you said there's something you would think maybe Facebook would take care of this, or or Twitter, or or Instagram, whatever right. it is. You'd you'd see the picture of the emu, whatever whatever it's being reported. Right. But there's something about, I guess, an editor, a paper, uh, in in a town. Right. I I think that's going to change, sadly, to me. Sadly, you know, it's the way that things are going. Um, Facebook and social media are are getting much more use now in rural areas. Everybody's wired, pretty much. Um, but I think people who trust their local paper, and I think this is such an important element to community journalism, they trust the paper. I mean, I don't trust everything on Facebook. I just spent yesterday lecturing my class on various fact-checking sites that they should check before they repost something that seems 
smelly, you know, fishy. Um, and there's a booming business now in fact-checking sites like Snopes.com and PolitiFact.org and all these places where you should go to check something out that sounds too good to be true. In a small town, that's the editor's job. And if, if he hears a story that's, you know, kind of crazy, he'll go check it out. And if it's true, and sometimes it is, um, he'll, he'll report it. So I think people, trust is a key element for a local journalist. I want to talk about uh, another one, that, that Holy Trinity, the obituaries. Um, and you, you <laughs> quote uh, University yeah. of Kentucky's Al Cross. Uh, he says, obituaries taken as a whole tell the story of a place. These people led interesting lives. One hallmark of weekly newspapers that you get these full-length obits and learn their connections in the community. Not all families can afford to pay. And he's talking about, he's decrying the fact that some papers are now charging for obituaries in the small towns. Yeah, it's, it, th- I think that's true, and I think that's sad. I think the best ones, uh, sometimes the good ones are written by the families because you can read between the lines. And let's face it, in a small town, if the guy was kind of a jerk, everybody knew it. And so, you know, nobody wants to take away from the family one last attempt to make him look a little better than he was. But um, the best ones are the ones written by the paper, and the best ones are are honest. And I think um, Bruce Anderson of the Anderson Valley Advertiser in Mendocino County, California, he's such a great writer. And he wrote a front page obituary uh, about the death of his brother, Ken. And it's a three-dimensional portrait. It's brutally honest. And could, do you mind if I just read it? Yeah, that, that, that'd be fine. Paragraph? Yeah, sure. He said, Ken had secret lives. And don't we all? Our family will not appreciate my saying he was lucky in love, serially lucky, and never happier than his last 20 years in Ukiah with a former Diane Zucker. In the middle 70s, Ken got into gambling, real gambling. He became one of the millions of Americans feeding organized crime. I walked into his house in Ukiah one day as he placed $8,000 on NFL football games. I hope you know what you're doing, I said, knowing full well that a teacher putting $8,000 down on information gleaned from the sports stage was a teacher about to lose his house, which is what happened. Ken was lucky to emerge with his kneecaps because he couldn't pay what he owed these people, and they were people who had to be paid. But everybody liked Ken, even the mafia, lucky for him. And that was just a part of a beautiful, you know, that's, <laughs> that's brutally honest. Mm-hmm. And, but it, you get a picture of this man who was flawed and loved, and it, that, that kind of writing is, is, is just precious. Um, but some of the... Some of the uh, editors, whether they charge or not, they have guidelines on on what the family can write about the, the deceased. And one, the West Valley View in Buckeye, Arizona, doesn't charge. But they have guidelines on what not to include. And some of the phrases that they will not, they will omit if you put them in is, gone to be with the Lord, loved to golf. Now, <laughs> I don't understand at all. Um all the survivors beyond the immediate family, including pets and uh, the survivor's spouses. So they have a list of things that they do not want in that obituary, and one of them is loved to golf. Now, what that means from the editor's <laughs> point of view, I don't know, but it's pretty funny. Yeah. I get, some of that stuff is important uh, going back later if you're doing genealogy. You, you want all the family connections, but uh, yeah, uh, they, he didn't want fluff, I guess. By the way, we, we did a program. Well, a whole, uh, go ahead, and uh, then I'll... Well, I was going to say, you know, some papers that allow it, like up in Montana, um, the um, especially the Native American paper at the Crow Reservation, 
they allowed all of that. And the obituaries would take up a whole page because you're talking there, and the names are um, are so long because they're Indian names, Absoluka names, and it just takes up a whole page. But everybody feels it's very important to list everybody. So there it's um, considered almost a holy thing, whereas in Arizona with this guy, it, it took up too much space. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. By the way, we did a, uh, a whole program on obituaries. Um, we talked to a very interesting lady, Heather Lendy. He, she's uh, oh yes, she's, she's in, in my book. Yes. In, in Chilcot Valley. Oh, she's in your book. I, I missed yes. her in your book. Oh yes. She's she's, she's become amazing. she's become known as the obituary writer in in Chilcot Valley. So yes, uh, she's very good. She'll come and write, uh, write your obituary. Yeah, she's she talks a lot too about um, the difficulty of sitting down with the family and trying to get the truth when they want to make it you know, all roses, um, when somebody, and she said that one man died of alcoholism, um, cancer, cirrhosis, um, not cancer, I'm sorry, cirrhosis of the liver. And she was trying to figure out, you know, you have to kind of, she didn't say that, but she simply said they were sad that he never really was able to get his, um, disease under control, which led to his Oh, yes, she did. Death by cirrhosis. You know, that's the way she put it. But everybody in town had been so sad because they saw him go through rehab and come out, and rehab and come out. And so that that was part of the story. And uh, the way she incorporates it, though, with compassion and kindness and uh, sensitivity makes all the difference. And one fact, as you said before, in a small town, everybody probably knew the guy. Yes, exactly. And so that that will shape how um, you do the you, obituary. If you hedge your bets there and play your cards too close to the vest, they also know that you're not being totally honest about mm-hmm. everything. So it's it's a fine line. Now, now the some third. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You're on obituaries. I was going to move on to school sports. But. Uh, no, no. Talk about school sports, and then I wanted to draw the three together. So, yeah, school sports. Yeah. And I, anybody who's ever school read sports. a small town paper knows uh, that's very important. you got to have the high school sports. And I like to say, as long as uh, refrigerator magnets are uh, an item you can buy, there will be community journalism because everybody likes to cut out the picture of their son or grandson catching the winning touchdown or their daughter's homecoming. You know, it's all of that stuff that gets on the front page of local papers and gets, you know, saved. And uh, it's not quite the same as putting it in the file, is it, uh, on mm. Word. Uh, so... Um, I love high school sports because it's where hyperbole lives. Um, it's uh, one of the Canadian, not the Canadian record, the uh, Concrete Herald up in Washington uh, had a wonderful little bit about the, the girls' volleyball team. I can't remember it in exact words I could find in the book, but something about the big headline, you know, girls' volleyball team, you know, great victors and it said they have really shown what they can do, and you get down to the bottom, and you find out that they've got a two-six record. <laughs> they lost six games, but it doesn't matter because it's all in how you look at those two games mm-hmm. they did well in. You know, that's right. Um, that's right. It's it's wonderful, and this one is uh, from oh, it's, this is Telluride Daily Planet, but it's a local high school basketball star. Um, you know. As a junior, just a hair over six feet, this guy can dunk just about any way he wants. Alley-oop, reverse, over a chair, in your face. All of which is fun to watch, unless you're trying to defend him, 
in which case it's 31 flavors of humiliation. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right. that's just good writing. Right. And uh, makes you care even if you don't care about sports or that town. That's yeah. what I love about I got so involved, you know, I would get these papers delivered to my house, um, and I got so involved in uh, one New Mexico team that, you know, they went to the championships. I couldn't wait till the next copy to see how they were doing. Now it's online, so partly, so, you know, you, you can follow it. Um, so that's, that's, I love high school sports in, in the paper. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with Judy Muller. Uh, who is a uh, professor in the Annenberg School at uh, U- uh, University of Southern California. And we're talking about her book, Emus, Loose, and Eggnar, Big Stories from Small Towns. You know, when I, I don't know whether this is good or bad. Whenever I think small town, I think about Mayberry, uh, you know, North ah. Carolina. Uh, fictional, you know, Andy Griffith Show. And I'm thinking yeah. right now about a, a wonderful episode, one of my favorite episodes of all time, of a man comes to town and he knows everybody and everybody's suspicious because he knows everything about everybody. And the punchline of the episode is that uh, he was friends in the army with a, uh, with a young man from Mayberry and he subscribed to the, the Mayberry newspaper. And from, right. from that, he wanted to come and be a part of Mayberry, wanted to, wanted to move well, in. And so I can, I can see that. Um, strangely enough, I'm thinking about writing another book based on a case in that town that was served as a model for Mayberry, where Andy Griffith grew up, uh, I was in Summerstock there as a college student, and uh, a, a girl was murdered in the cast that summer, and it was, it's an unsolved case today. Fifty years later, it's a cold case. And Mayberry on television is one thing. Mayberry, or this is Nantio, North Carolina, in real life, when there was a crime, was not so cheery. Um, mm-hmm. they, they threw... Um, People in jail, just because you know we had a lot of gay members in the cast, they were suspect. Why I don't know. Um, there's one black guy in town who's always thrown in jail just as the first suspect. You know, it was really and Don Knotts. You know, that's a cute character in television, but if he's actually your sheriff, or <laughs> you really don't mm-hmm. want him in there. So they brought in the Colorado Bureau of Investigation to uh, to take over the case. This is I'm giving it away, um, but it's a, it's a great story. And I always love that, you know, don't don't over-sentimentalize mm-hmm. small towns because I think that's a danger. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sometimes, the, you know, the cruelty of a small town, as I saw in the Norwood Hazing case, the uh, the boy who was victimized in that case, um, by the way, the, the boys who um, were accused uh, had pleas and were able to do community service and were not jailed, but they were found guilty. Um, but the boy who was the victim, because the town is so small, because the school was so small, he and his parents, and the father, remember, was the principal of the high school, um, had to leave. They moved away. So that's the dark side of small town, you know, closeness. Um, yeah. it, it's not all, you know, Mayberry. And I think Mayberry is how we want to think of small towns because right. it's it's bound up in americana right so it's how it's how we see right. ourselves even if we live in a big in a big city but yeah that's it's a good corrective that uh that maybe we shouldn't yeah. have the rose-colored glasses yes i agree <laughs> yeah. um but i think that we can take at, you know as, as we see newspapers and this big disruption of the digital revolution uh taking such big hits 
mostly because they didn't see it coming. They didn't understand Craigslist would take away their ads. It, it was such a revolution in the business model. Um, and so a lot of good reporters are, are getting fired. Rocky Mountain News folded, and uh, one of their best reporters, their political reporter, um, went down to his home state of New Mexico and, and found a, a great little paper he decided to buy, and now he turns out a weekly, which he has found, uh, his name is Emmy Springlemeyer, and it's the Guadalupe County Communicator. And he started this in 2009, and he's still at it. And these people didn't know what hit them. This paper, after he bought it, it was such good journalism. He brought in a political cartoonist from the Rocky Mountain News. He brought in a photographer from the Rocky. And suddenly this thing is winning every award that New Mexico Press Associations had to offer. And he... As hard as it is, because it's hard, this kind of work, uh, he absolutely loves it. And I, I follow that paper religiously because it's such good work. But that's one side of what's happening with the, the firing, the downsizing of big papers. A lot of people are saying, well, wait a minute, I can still practice journalism in a different way. And this is one of the ways that people still find the heart and soul of what they love to do. Yeah, that's a, that's a positive message. We we do hear a lot of doom about about newspapers. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about the. I made reference to this earlier. I want to talk about the Canadian record. Um, this is in the Panhandle of of Texas, and I don't want to neglect talking about a Utah institution, uh, Jim Stiles, the uh, Canyon <laughs> Country uh, yes. Zephyr. You have him in your chapter called Curmudgeons. <laughs> so let's talk yes, about I that. Do. Uh, <laughs> more following the break. Renewable energy is gaining momentum across the country. But what are your options? You've read about windmills, you've heard about solar panels, but how do you take the next step? Utah Public Radio wants to hear from you. For example, with a small family living in a little outdated apartment in rural Utah, how can you convert to clean energy? Visit upr.org backslash upin. Become a source with the Utah Public Insight Network and submit your questions about renewable energy to UPR. And tell us, what do you want to know? Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest for the hour is Judy Muller who's a professor in the uh, School of Journalism, the Annenberg School at the uh, University of Southern California and uh, author of the book, Emus uh, uh, Lucenegnar, Big Stories in Small Towns. We're talking about ta- small town newspapers, small town journalism. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So um, uh, prior to the previous break, I read that the opening paragraph from your chapter, chapter two, called Crusaders, uh, Judy Muller, mm-hmm. an incident which uh, the young Laurie Hizel, uh, 1961, a uh, uh, rock thrown through the, through the bedroom window, and she, she's startled but not surprised. She says, Dad's written another editorial. Tell me about the uh, Canadian <laughs> record. Well, her father, Ben Hizel, uh, purchased the Canadian record, uh, I think it was 1948. I'm just looking here. Yes. And... Um, and he was a real independent maverick. This, this is a very conservative part of the country, Panhandle of Texas. And he put out an editorial that came out against the Vietnam War, which, you know, 
poor Lori go to school and her brothers and sisters and be labeled communists. And, you know, it was a, it was a rock coming through the window was not unusual. Um, so this is a, a, a very tough family. And Lori grew up with this. One local businessman was so, was so angry about that, that Vietnam editorial that he tried to organize a boycott by the merchants in town. And, uh, he had went and the guy had only one way to get the word out. He bought out, a, he bought a half page ad in the Canadian record, <laughs> ironically, yeah. and the boycott failed and he's all separating. You know, um, this was the strong, outspoken editor that Lori grew up with. So when she, he died and she took over the paper, she was even tougher than he was, I think. Uh, she, her brother, um, was a, a town official who, uh, who served on the board of the county hospital. And she warned him. She said, you're not advertising the public meetings as you're supposed to under the sunshine laws. And you've got to start doing that or I'm going to call you on it. And they didn't do it. And so she wrote a skating editorial, which named her brother as the culprit in not letting the public into these meetings. And he didn't talk to her for a year. Now that's Hmm. too close for comfort. That's tough. Um, she wanted to cover all the Board of Ed meetings. Her father had never done that. He relied on, you know, their minutes. Uh, and she went and to every meeting, and they didn't want her in the room. They put a chair out in the hallway and said, so you can listen from here. And she said, no, the chair will be in the room. So then they moved it sort of in the doorway, halfway in. And eventually she got into the room. But it was that kind of stubborn streak that, that kept kept her. And now, even when she writes editorials that are you know more towards the left than the town is, people respect her because she allows letters to the editor. Everybody gets a voice. She's respected. And, and that's, uh, that's what she's aiming for. It's tough work, though. Um, she once had a, there was a, a bullet fired through her, the window of her car when she wasn't in it parked outside and uh, because people were angry about the way she was covering a certain trial of a local person. So, you know, this is uh, serious stuff. Now, uh, two of your chapters, uh, one called Crusaders, they're called curmudgeons. Do, do you then have to be a crusader or curmudgeon to write, to do that kind of journalism in sort of against the grain in your, in your small town? Um, I don't think you have to be. Lori wouldn't call herself a crusader. I did that. And I don't think, uh, well, Jim Stiles would call himself a curmudgeon but, um, uh, in, in Moab, Utah. But um, Ben Anderson, uh, was uh, Bruce Anderson, I'm sorry, was, was startled to hear me say he was a curmudgeon. I said, believe me, Bruce, <laughs> compared to everybody else, you're pretty tough. So um, I don't think they use that label. I think that you do have to be tough. I think you have to have a spine, and I think you have to have a really strong moral compass. And if you want to be that kind of editor who, who stands out, uh, Lori won the Gish Award for Courage in Journalism, which is put out by um, the University of Kentucky. And um, she won it, and that award is named for the Gish family, um, uh, who, who were in Kentucky over the years. Uh, the Mountain Eagle was their paper, is their paper still. Their son still runs it. And... Um, Tom Gish, who was the editor, uh, they had a, and his wife, they had a, a motto for the paper, the Mountain Eagle, it screams. 
And when they took on the coal companies for, you know, various corrupt practices, uh, their newspaper office got burned down. Hmm. And the whole family got together and put out the paper the next week from home on typewriters and with the banner headline that said, The Mountain Eagle, It Still Screams, and refused to step down. Um, they were the first ones to report the poverty in Appalachia. It got the um, attention of Homer Biggert, uh, a New York Times big-time reporter. He came down and said, I can't believe this. They're exaggerating this. And he said, after he saw it, he said, if anything, they're underplaying it. And his reports, based on their reporting in the New York Times, led to Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. That's the power a small paper can have. Yeah, yeah, that is that is power. Uh, I want to talk about Jim Stiles, and I, you know, I think most people in Utah know at least of Jim Stiles, the uh, Canyon Country <laughs> Zephyr, which uh, here's an illustration of kind of the pressures on papers. It used to be a print paper, and now it's, now it's online only. Um, I want to just read this uh, brief paragraph from a very recent uh, editorial or piece he had in the uh, Canyon Country Zephyr. CanyonCountryZephyr.com is where you find this. He's referring to response to a, an editorial that, or a piece that he wrote. He says, I accept these kinds of uninformed and emotional rants because I know the information in this story doesn't fit some Moabites' preconceived notions. In a nutshell, the facts don't fit their biases. I realize that part of the problem for those people will be the conflicted and contradictory loyalties that will arise from this story. They'll find themselves at odds with others and with their own core beliefs. And that I thought that was a very uh, it summed up a lot of the issues here, and of course yeah. he he well, puts him describes himself as a curmudgeon. He he writes what he what he feels. Well, his motto on the paper is clinging hopelessly to the past. So <laughs> I think there it is. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he's, uh, he doesn't like what's happened in Moab, uh, which is if you know the old Moab was quite a sleepy little town. Some cyclists would come and cycle around the area, which is an incredible cycling area. Um, and it's turned into a very big tourist mecca. I just recently drove through there and was astonished at <laughs> what's happened to Moab. And this is happening a lot to towns. I mean, my brother moved to Telluride, Colorado, in this, uh, I think around 1970. There was no ski area. It was a real old mining town still. Um, and he sometimes says the same things about Telluride and what it's become. That happens a lot in resort towns where people want to go back to the past. And Jim Stiles represents those people. Um, he's also an environmentalist, and he's angry. Even at environmentalists who come in who are rich and build huge, you know, 30,000-square-foot mansions up in the hills, uh, but because they donate so much money to environmental groups, they're given a pass. And he says he thinks that's hypocritical, that... You know, environmentalists go after uh, farmers and ranchers for letting cows graze on the land, and they they go after miners, but they don't go after these people, rich people who come in and build these enormous homes and uh, change change everything. So he's got a point, but he's lost a lot of supporters because they are the people who give to these groups. So he really kind of alienated his base at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to mention that we're just about out of time, so just to mention here that you did talk with, uh, in your book, Adrian Taylor from the Moab Times Independent. People will be interested in reading yes. that that chapter, or part of that chapter. Yes. Uh, I just want to close with a brief paragraph. I want to read this uh, quickly. This sums up—it's <laughs> good writing, too. You talk about Norwood. 
where you've lived. Yeah. Uh, you say Norwood, population 500, elevation 7,100 feet. It's the kind of town where everything is only a few blocks over that way, including the splish-splash buggy bath where you can get your car washed for less than $3, or the dry cleaners where asking for a receipt is considered an insult, or the tiny post office where a sign was once taped to the door that read, To the garden hose thief, it takes a real low life to steal both the hose and the geraniums. Please return the hose at least. No questions will be asked. This, this is what we like about small towns, I believe. It is. I, I have a home in Norwood, um, and I have felt uh, that too close for comfort thing when I wrote the story that you mentioned in the other book about the hazing incident that took place with the wrestling team. Uh, you know, uh, but people trusted me because I lived there. In fact, the parents of the kids who were uh, accused uh, called me back. They hadn't talked to any other reporters. And I said, I got to ask you, why are you talking to me when your lawyer suggested you not talk to the press? And they said, well, we know who you are. You live up there in Deer Mesa, and you gave the uh, commencement address at the high school last year. <laughs> that was, right. That was enough. <laughs> That's right. You know. <laughs> well, we're, we're uh, out of time. Uh, very interesting book. I recommend it highly. Uh, Emus and Agnar, Big Stories from Small Towns. Judy Moeller, the author, uh, has been with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, uh, by the way, just a parting shot, uh, Agnar is in Colorado. That's a range spelled backwards. Uh, uh, it's, it's in the title, so I thought we'd get that uh, factoid out there. Um, by the way, tomorrow we're going to talk about domestic violence and the lethality assessment protocol. Uh, people are looking for money at the legislature for uh, money for that uh, program. We'll talk about that uh, on the program tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio.